0: Great to hear uh, those stories and get an insight into what is happening um, through some of the ministries in the church. Um, probably a couple of weeks ago, uh, you're all looking at a screen, I know it's much better looking than I am, that's all right. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the, 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 the results or at least the initial results of the census came out and one of the things that the headlines picked up on, and all the newspapers had it on the front page, Christianity no longer the majority religion in the United Kingdom. And I don't know how it hit you, but I think it's uh, it's been, for probably some people, a little bit of a shock. For others of us who've been saying this and getting... Uh, getting the kicks uh, from others saying, oh, it's not true, it's not true. Um, It's been a confirmation of what we've been observing in our society uh, over the last decades or so. How how did it hit you as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? And particularly if you're native to the United Kingdom and you understand the history of the nation, you understand how... Christianity was woven into the fabric of our social structures, uh, and almost every organization, if you peel back the layers, you can see traces of how the faith in Jesus Christ w- was foundational for the forming of the architecture, the social architecture of this nation. How do you feel when you suddenly realize that less than half of the population would declare themselves Christian. Now there's a big <laughs> there's a big conversation to be had about those who declare themselves as Christians and only attend church, I think it was only about is it ten percent or so? It was it was a fairly big gap between the I am a Christian and I'm actually attending church. I'm a practicing Christian or whatever the expression was used there. Reality on the ground is pretty grim. You know, some of you, local, would remember that it was a certain Pentecostal church in Lancaster where great signs and wonders had happened. Hundreds and hundreds of people came to know Jesus, experiencing great revival. Tell me, where is it now? It's gone. Tell me what the building is, an Indian restaurant. Look at some of the ch- rural churches And how many of the chapels or the rural church buildings are coming for sale because the congregation has died? We've got to be serious about this, and we've got to ask some hard questions because the reality is this didn't just happen overnight, and it didn't just happen accidentally. And I would dare to say it happened because we've neglected one of the most significant things that's on the heart of Jesus for his church, and that's mission. We've done pretty well on a lot of other things, but somehow we missed the memo when it comes to mission. And this is why right at the very beginning of our journey into looking at what normal church looks like in the book of Acts, we find Jesus uh, in between his resurrection and his ascension, spending time with the disciples and giving them some very important words. And you and I would know that people... Uh, although obviously you can't apply it necessarily totally to Jesus, but people before they're about to pass away, they pass on some great wisdom. It's the distilled wisdom of the years that have been spent thinking about something. So when they're talking about that, they tend to talk with a lot of wisdom behind it. One thing is for sure. It's important. If Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, comes onto the earth and ministers and fulfills the mission plan of salvation, and then is about to go, you want to hear, I think, what he has to say to his believers, to his followers, before he goes away, while he's still in flesh and blood incarnate. I would want to know what he has to say. And right at the very heart of what he has to say is primarily, you've got to live on mission. And yet, ironically... I think this is what the Western church has failed to do. It isn't as if God's hand is more powerful in other parts of the world to save people and churches are growing and believers are coming to Christ in hostile places like Iran. It isn't as if God somehow magically, geographically, has a particular release of power in a certain area. That's not the secret. The secret lies in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. And the difference is that the Western church has done for many years a very subtle thing. It's called avoidance. But we're smart. And we have excuses that sound really good. And I'll give you a couple. The first excuse is this. We need first of all to get ourselves right. I need to get to the level of spiritual maturity before I'm able to tell other people about Jesus. I don't know all the answers. When people are asking me about the mystery of suffering or how the Trinity works, I don't know how to answer those questions. So I will spend the next 40 years to follow Jesus, pretending that I'm learning to those ans- the answers to those questions, and only then, when I'm ready... I will tell other people about Jesus. It's called avoidance. But we dress it up as a sort of smart thing. Or sometimes we think, you know what? My life isn't quite sorted yet. I still get angry. I lose my rank. I shout at my husband and my wife and my kids. You know, I, I, I kind of, you know, laugh at a bit of a dirty joke at work. So surely I cannot tell about Jesus to other people. So I'm going to wait till I get myself properly right... And have sinless perfection, which doesn't exist. And I never do anything wrong. And only then I will tell other people about Jesus. It's called avoidance. The other one that we've used very often is, and it's kind of theologically inspired, is do you know what? I don't need to tell other people about Jesus. All I need is to live my life as a good disciple of Jesus, and then suddenly other people will become Christians. And is that sort of quote, weird quote, that actually isn't real, you know, about speaking only when you have to. Well, the Apostle Paul very clearly said, how will people hear if we will not tell, declare, speak out the good news of Jesus? But we said, you know what? I'm just going to live a good life. I'm going to help the old lady cross... The road. I'm going to take my neighbor's dog for a walk. You know, I'm going to give to charity. I'm going to, I'm going to do all those things. And then people will suddenly look at me and say, Do you know what? I've just walked, seen you walk the dog of your neighbor. You, you know, what a good person you are. You know what? I want to follow Jesus. Because that's how it happens, right? It hasn't. And this is why Britain, with the incredible history of Christian influence, with every social structure infused with a foundation of faith, is suddenly now dismantling because we've stopped sharing Jesus. We've stopped living on mission. We've stopped inviting people to come and meet him. And that's why churches are dying. That's why the number of Christians is shrinking. That's why there is such a crisis. And rural churches are closing down. And other churches are closing down because the numbers are getting lower and lower and lower. So how do we get back? Because this is depressing. And I want to depress you a little bit, if I'm really honest. I want to depress you because I think we're living in a denial. And we need to sometimes hear the truth. And I know I'm going to get probably emails this week. And usually I get some emails where people say, Do you know what? You talk about mission and missional... And it's frustrating to me because you should be talking about maturity, Christian maturity. Listen, it's like the two train tracks. I talk about both. But I want to tell you, one of those tracks is in a better state. And the other track is in a worse state. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk probably and overemphasize trying to get repairs done at a track that is in a worse state. And mission certainly is in the worse state. And we will continue to address both, but probably, at least from my heart, with an emphasis on mission. And frankly, it isn't because, you know, this is what I want. It is because it's the heart of Jesus. If before Jesus ascended, he spoke about mission, 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 going out, making disciples, baptizing people... Seeing people come to him. How can I not speak about those things? How can you and I not embrace the same passion that Jesus has? Would we want to live any differently than to the thing that he loves? Let's delve into the text and see what Jesus has to say. So this is uh, Acts chapter 1. And we're going to spend some time in in verses 1 to 11. And I want to pick up a couple of things from Jesus. This is what Luke is writing as he recalls those incidents. Acts 1, this one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I will pause here for now. The thing that I absolutely love is that before Jesus is ascending into heaven, he's coaching the disciples. Um, He's spending some time equipping them and preparing them. And it isn't as if Jesus just rose from the dead and, and then just went. He used that time... 40 days to invest heavily in making sure the disciples were edified and built up and ready for the mission that he had for them. And he did that in several ways. It says here, Jesus began, uh, until the day he was taken up to heaven, he began to do and teach, giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the disciples. So he's preparing them by teaching them spending time and explaining once again what he was about and what he was wanting them to do. It says after his suffering he presented himself to them and gave convincing proofs that he was alive. Those people could have struggled with doubt. They might have had questions and he's making sure that he's spending time with them answering those questions and making sure that they can get as much as possible on a solid foundation of trusting that he is really alive, and therefore everything that he said and everything he's asking them to do is legit. So he's doing everything that he can to solidify their foundations. And then he says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And later on in verse 4, he says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, He gave them this command. Jesus does life with them, relationally. He is there, physically present with them. If you want, he's hanging out with them, eating with them. Normal life where they were together, relationally. Strengthening that, making sure that they understood that he loved them and he cared for them. And every single one of them was really important. To him, So he comprehensively spends that time with them, investing in them, making sure that intellectually they get all the proofs that they need. That they remember his teaching, but also that relationally they feel the emotion and affection that he has for them. So Jesus is spending that time coaching them and preparing them. But then he commissions them. Look at verse 4. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the fathers have set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and the cloud hit him, hid him from their side. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white, stood beside Jesus and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? The same Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So what does Jesus have to say to them right before he ascends into heaven? What are Jesus' famous last words? What is it? Well, this is what he says to them. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised. And then he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It kind of has a double-sided content the command that Jesus gives to them. And it is a command. It's important that we understand that. Sometimes we we misunderstand. When Jesus gives a command, it's not a suggestion. It's not something that is optional. It's compulsory. And it's for all. And he says to them really clearly, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift, the promised Holy Spirit. Listen, for them to obey that it would have required a lot of trust and a lot of courage. We've spoken about this before. Most normal people hate to wait. (laughs) Isn't it true? We hate to wait. And they wouldn't have been different. There would have been, for them, an instinct of trying to get something going. And every single day that nothing was happening, they would have grown increasingly anxious. But God has this habit of testing people's obedience and trust before he releases the miraculous. You remember the wars of Jericho? Seven days. I'm thinking, could God not have done it in half a you know, round? He could have but he said he wanted it seven times. I'm thinking of Naaman having to dip in the River Jordan. And I'm imagining this conversation that Naaman would have had in his head, thinking, why does it have to be seven? Can it not be three? There is something about waiting and being obedient to what God is saying, and this is what it's required of them. And probably, particularly as the days were going by, And they realized that because Jesus was crucified, they, as a follower of Jesus, would have been in danger. The instinct would have been, we got to get ourselves out of here. But Jesus says, wait. Yeah, but it's not safe. Wait. What about our families? Wait. It's not easy. It requires courage and trust on their behalf. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying to them. And it is incredibly essential that they waited. And I'll get you to discuss in the Connect Groups, if you look at the questions, why that is incredibly significant. All I can say is that without the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God himself coming to indwell the disciples they would have ended up having to do mission in their own strength, through their own wisdom, using their own resources. Absolute failure written all over it. But instead, they are told to wait so they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. It will enable them to testify about Jesus. They're called to receive the Holy Spirit coming into them. And that is significant because most of us, we would say, when God is calling us like he called those, you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They would have said, I can't do this. I can't do this. Some of them would have said, I can't, I can't be a witness in Jerusalem. Jesus, you just got killed in Jerusalem. There's no way I am putting myself in the firing line saying, Oh, people, do you remember the Jesus you killed? I'm one of his followers. Guess what? I want to call you to follow him too. What mad person would do that in their own, you know, sanity, through their own strength? Nobody. So all of them would have said, I can't be a witness in Jerusalem. Some would have said, Samaria? Are you kidding me? You're calling me to go and do open air in Baghdad or Kabul? Are you crazy? Do you not know what they do to people like me? It cannot be done, humanly speaking. Ends of the earth, we're Jewish people. We don't do ends of the earth. It's all about you, God, Yahweh, and our people. We don't really care too much about other people unless they want to come and embrace our God. Can't do that. See why they needed the Holy Spirit? Because it was totally impossible. That's why they had to wait and receive And that's why Jesus is saying to them, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promised Holy Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, that mission impossible now becomes possible because you receive the Holy Spirit who comes into your life. And then you will go. You will go. And for some of you, it would be local, as local as Judea. For some of you, it would be fairly local, but in a very uncomfortable environment, like Samaria, with people you don't like, people who aren't like you, people who actually don't like you, and you don't like them. And for some of you, it's going to be traveling all the way to the ends of the earth. That means that this mission that Jesus has to spread his love has no limits, has no barriers. There's nothing in the way. There's no dream that's too big when it comes to the love of Christ being taken to the whole world. And that's the vision that they receive. But it has to be active. It doesn't doesn't say... Wait for the Holy Spirit, wait in Jerusalem, receive the Holy Spirit, and then just keep on waiting in Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem. And just, you know, take the old lady across the road and walk the dog of your neighbor, and everybody's going to become a follower of Jesus, just like that, because you do good deeds. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. When he talks in in what what is seen in Matthew's gospel right at the very end, Matthew 28, verses 19 to twenty. Again, it's more descriptive when Jesus says, you should be my disciples. And your calling is to go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, here comes the baptism plug, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So this is nothing to do about, you know, walking the old lady across the street and taking the neighbor's dog. Those might be nice things for you to do. I'm not dissing them. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about people coming to Christ, people being baptized, people becoming disciples through teaching. That's what we're talking about. Through the way we share the good news with others. So actually there's a real focus that is given to the disciples. Because I can imagine that when the early church had a some sort of informal leadership structure. Peter certainly was there. You know, he, he was the very natural leader. And some of the others would have gathered around and would have said, let's sit down, get, get a blank piece of paper, sit in our boardroom and try to work out what our vision is, guys. What's our vision? What should we be doing? Well, Jesus doesn't give them a lot of room for maneuver. <laughs> Because his vision is very specific and very clear. And he even gives sort of geographical pinpoints. So they couldn't say, oh, well, you know what? I don't think we should be going into Samaria. I don't think those people were high on Jesus' agenda. They didn't really treat him very nicely. I mean, you know, the Samaritan woman, she told them but She was one of theirs. She can do the missionary work. Not for us. But Jesus drops that in. It's almost like a pin on the map to make it specific and to say, hey, I'm serious about this. And he calls them to wait and then go. It's interesting that the question that comes from them is absolutely sideways. And again, it's got that smack of what I was saying at the very beginning, what we're very good in terms of, you know, when we don't want to do something, we (laughs) find ways. Avoidance. So Jesus is telling them, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then they say, uh, Jesus, can we talk about the second coming? Can we talk about your return? And this is the kind of thing that happens sometimes in church. You know, we bring a message about mission, and somebody says, yeah, 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 but, you know, we've got to figure out about 144,000. You know, and only when we figure that out, you you know, we probably can, you you know, go and tell our neighbor about Jesus' love or tell our workmate about Jesus' love. They call it whataboutism nowadays. We find ways to kind of, Jesus is saying one thing and they go, we want to talk about something else. Can we change the subject? We had a famous Romanian politician. He was actually the Ministry of Justice. Uh, absolutely arrogant guy who every single time the press were grilling him, instead of answering the question, he would say, Another question? Another question? And I feel like I'm like that at times. Jesus is saying something, and I go another question. (laughs) You know, in other words, tell me something else because I I don't want to do that. Tell me something else. Is there anything else? You you know, and that's what the disciples do. They ask a bit of a sideways question, and therefore Jesus answers to them by actually making it very specific and talking about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and about them being witnesses. They're saying, "Look, don't worry about the second coming." Only the Father knows. I don't even know. You worry about this. You be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then let other things take their course. But it is interesting that when the angels, after Jesus' departure, speaks to them, he's saying to them that he will come back. And there is that sense of, there is an accountability that needs to be here. Jesus will be coming back. And there's a sense in which, you know, what's he coming back to? What have we done? What have me and you done? What have the disciples done? Have they been faithful to that call? Have they responded to that invitation? What's he going to be like? (laughs) Some of you have had that experience of kind of, you know, boss goes away. You know, and gives you some tasks, and particularly goes away for a lengthier amount of time. And they're coming back, and they want to see what the place looks like. I'm just talking about your wife, really. They want to see what the place looks like, you know, where the things are in good order, what you've done, what was asked of you, whether you've done, any improvements. You know, and, and there is always that trepidation. It's like the Ofsted, isn't it? You know, The Ofsted comes to check to make sure the school is running well. They're not nasty people. They they just want to do the very best for the students and for the teachers and for the staff. It's it's not meant to be mean. It's meant to make sure that the standards are right and the responsibility is there. And it's the same. The thought of Jesus returning should be at the back of our mind thinking, you know, how am I living my life? Am I fulfilling what he's asked me to do? Or am I just totally ignoring it? And that's why the angels are saying to them, in the same way you've seen him go, you will see him come. So this is my encouragement for us this morning to embrace the heart of Jesus. You know, and it isn't about ignoring maturity at the expense of mission. I told you, it's two parallel train tracks. We need both in our lives. But I think the elephant in the room for us in the Western Church, hey, we've had courses, you know, we're running so many things. We've got resources, we've got, you know, commentaries. But we've got stuff that is so rich, in order to develop our spiritual maturity, we've got apps, we've got so much stuff. But I think where we're struggling is to see people regularly come to Christ. I've lived through that experience, I've tasted it, and that's why I, I, I'm, I'm bugging you because I know it's real. The church I grew up in was a church of about over 100, 110 people, and it's been 110 people for about 35 years. And, you, you know, it, it stayed the number it stayed because people kept having kids. You know, so you'd have elderly folks dying and kids being born. So the number stayed level. But nobody from the outside was becoming a follower of Jesus. And at one point, as the pastor uh, retired, uh, the church elders decided to that something had to be done about this. So they went and scouted a young evangelist. He was pastoring a rural church, probably in a place like Carnforth. who's seen significant increase of people from the outside becoming Christians, and the church growing significantly in size through that. So they scouted him. He came in. He was the real deal. He was an evangelist. He was a, he was a really lousy pastor, but he was a tremendous evangelist. And he, and he knew it. And, and, and you know, he was, he was brilliant like it. But, you know, and he said to the elders of the church, the culture of the church has to change. So we need to become an invitational church. He said, I'll do my job. I'll preach the gospel. But we need people who are going to pray. And we're going to need everybody to bring people so they can hear the good news. Within two and a half years, the church grew to over 800 people. All salvations. Seriously, I'm not kidding you. All salvations. Friends, neighbors, relatives, workmates, anybody. I'm telling you, nobody could come three times and not become a Christian. I mean, the power of God was at work, but it was simple. It was just simple. People started bringing other people to church. And the gospel was being preached, you know, in a simple way, in a clear way, in a convicting way. No manipulation, you know, no smoke machines, no no fancy anything. And massive, massive prayer behind the scenes. While the preaching was going on, there were 40, 50 people praying downstairs. Every Friday night through the night, the women of the church would hold an all-night prayer meeting, praying for salvation, for kids, for, for, for their husbands, for everybody. I've told you before, I went to pick up my mom, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning. one, And I went, and they were in the basement, concrete floor, and the concrete floor was wet from the tears of w- w- those women who were weeping for salvation. And we're struggling with 15 people at the prayer meeting. Something's got to change. I'm not guilt tripping you. I'm just telling you the truth. Something's got to change. You can't look over the fence at other places where people are coming to Christ and responding to the gospel, you know, and just simply stay at the well-wishing kind of factor. But you've got to look at what's happening behind. And therefore, we need to bring people, we need to preach the gospel, and we need to pray to see those people come to Christ in a significant way. I truly believe it's possible. God's hand is not short to save people. It's not as geographically there's something over the UK that God cannot bring those people to know the love of Jesus. But we've got to do our part. Otherwise, it's pointless. It's just not going to work. So those people receive that call from Jesus. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. And the two things for me, first of all, we need to be confident because just as those disciples were prepared and coached, we are also called. We've received from Jesus so much, haven't we? We've received a lot from Him. Do we have the Holy Spirit in us? Okay, There's a few here. Do we have the Holy Spirit in us? Yes! And if you're not sure you have the Holy Spirit in us, you know, I want to encourage you. You come forward, and we prayed. And make sure that you experience that. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, there is nothing that is impossible that God cannot do through you. Whoever you are, whatever your level of confidence is, because it's not about you. It's about what he can do through me and you. So we need to be confident. Jesus has coached us. He spent time with us, just like he did with the disciples. Not physically, but he spent time with us. Some of us have been in church a really long time. Seriously, we've got all the, all the coaching we could get from Jesus, so we can be confident. But also, we need to have that sense of responding to the calling that Jesus gives us because he does call us. And for some of you, it means staying in Judea. And for some of you, it means going into Samaria. Some of you will stay local in your environment with the people that you know. and God will use you to share the good news. Some of you could be called to spend time with people who, from the outside, others would look and go, man, that's really tough. But for you, because God gives you a heart of compassion for them, that's your natural environment. Other people will look at you and go, man, that's hard. You go, I love this. I love these people. Where is God calling you? And for some of us, it is the ends of the earth. It is somewhere a little bit further. The question is, I believe that there is no permission to not be on mission for any of us who declare ourselves as followers of Jesus. So if I was to ask you the question, where has Jesus sent you? I don't know is not a great answer nowhere is not a great answer you could say i feel i'm called to jerusalem to my environment to the people my neighbors those are the people that god is sending me to some of you are saying god is sending me to samaria there's a group of people i'm working with that others find really difficult but that's where god's given me a heart for them could be kids work <laughs> you know could be working with people you know who are elderly you know, other people would say, I, I struggle to work. That's okay. That's cool. We're not all the same. But the beauty is that in the church, God gives us those different passions. So it could be a Samaria, or it could be the ends of the earth. But Jesus is calling you to give, go away. And He has. There's a couple of families from our church who've responded to that. Not everybody's called to that, but some are called to that. That's what Jesus is saying. But what's not okay? If I was to ask you the questions for you to say, I don't know, or nowhere. All of us should be able to answer that question. Where has God called you on mission? And you would say, I think it's here. This is where the heart of Jesus has placed me. And it's simply easy in some ways to identify. And for me, there are some things that would be helpful as questions and will land with this Here are some questions that will really help you figure out, you know, what? where is God sending me? Is it Jerusalem? Is it Judea? Is it Samaria? Is it the end of the world? I want to say, where are you? Where has God placed you? Because sometimes the answer to that call is the very place where God has placed you. There's something about the the geographical area and the environment and the people that you live with that is very significant. Not for everybody, but for you it could be significant. I truly want to believe that most of us who are Christians make our decisions of where to live asking God. Right? Kind of what good Christians do, don't we? We don't just simply look put a finger on the map and go, well, I think I'm going to go there. And I know the area where we live is is absolutely beautiful and it's so amazing. So it could be, you know, it's a great reason to, to live where we live. But maybe the Lord has spoken to you about this. Well, have you ever asked the question, why did God send me here? Some of you, like me, you're kind of outcasts. You know, newcomers from, some of you from the deep down south, you know, not many. You know, or others, you know, from the foreign places of Yorkshire. You know, so, you know, God has called you. Why has he called you and placed you in the village or the town or the city where he's placed you? Why? Do you think God makes mistakes? The God who placed somebody like Esther in a significant position... For such a time as that, doesn't make mistakes. First question, the geography. Where where did God place you? Why did he place you there? Why are you there? Who are the people that are around? You know, what's going on in that village? Or what's going on in that area? Second question is, what did God make you like? And there's two things to this. One is your personality, and the other one is your history. Why did God make you the way he did? It's because he wants somebody exactly like you with your personality and your history to connect with other people that would otherwise not connect to somebody like me. How amazing is that? Have you ever stopped and thought about who you are and what you're like? Because sometimes you kind of feel like, oh, I'm a little bit weird because I like that kind of stuff. And nobody else, I only met like three people that like that kind of stuff. Well, do you know what? It's because God uniquely makes you like that. And the history, the story of your life, and sometimes the valleys probably more than the mountaintops, is so significant to the way God will use you and can use you to connect with other people. Julian Collin, this is not in the notes, so it's dangerous. But Julian Collin, you know, going through incredible valley in, in their lives, and now are spending time with other people who otherwise they will never be able to connect with because of the history of their lives that God redemptively brings out that 's the question: what did God make you like and then last but not least, what has God said to you it's so amazing if i if we were to spend really careful. Time, a time of reflection over the years in different situations, God has spoken to you about maybe a cause or a, a group of people or an area. And sometimes we just, do you know, a kind of polite disobedience has a way of dulling our senses further on the journey. And I found out with some people that God has spoken to them very significantly about something that God wants them to be involved in their life. And they're kind of chosen to ignore it politely because we're polite people. We're not rude people. You know, we're polite and we ignore it and we put it on the side. And God has kind of stopped speaking so loudly ever since. Because he wants us to return back to that place and say, hey, I've created you. I've got a plan for you. And I want you to use that which I've given you to connect a mission with other people. What's God spoken to you about? Maybe this morning is that little knock on the door, of God saying, come on. You know we talked about this. I've got a plan for your life. I want you to use you in a significant way. I know you don't think you can do it, but that's okay because the Holy Spirit can. I know you think it's difficult, but maybe it's time to respond to him. Let's stand together as we respond in worship. Jesus, my heart is so full this morning. I feel like I go on till three o'clock. Lord, my heart is full because I'm just getting so many glimpses of your heart. And falling in love with you. And falling in love with that which you came onto the earth for. The incarnation that we celebrated. It's just such a stark reminder. Such a wake-up call. Such a clarion call. Such an invitation for us to come into the fullness of what you intended us to live as disciples. And as a church. And Lord, that's the fullness that we long for. For the gospel of Jesus to continue to transform lives radically. So that the name of Jesus would be lifted up. Not just through songs in a locked room on a Sunday morning. So that the name of Jesus would be glorified 24-7 over all the towns and villages and the city nearby us. So the name of Jesus would be exalted as people bow their knee before him, finding salvation, finding rescue, finding deliverance, finding healing. All to the glory of his name. Lord, we want to say yes to your invitation. We feel like we're having to take baby steps and we're so awkward like a toddler walking. But I know you're okay with that. But Lord, we just long for that fullness and we long for that. We don't want to pat ourselves on the back because it's pretty packed in here on this Sunday morning. Lord, we, we dream of two, three services of maybe other church plants in other places. If it means that people are coming to Christ. Lord, we don't want to live with low expectations of what your gospel can do. So here we are saying we're available. We, we, we're we saying yes. Yes, we're like toddlers hobbling about. But we're saying yes. We're saying We're ready to put our hand in your hand. You lead us, Lord. You lead us. Amen.